Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. Mr. McGurk, I'd like to thank you for again uh, appearing before the committee. You've always been a direct witness, and we thank you for that. I think uh, after most of your testifying, whether classified or in public, most people leave uh, more informed, far more informed than they do with most witnesses, and hope you'll, hopefully you'll live up to that today. Almost two years after we began military operations, ISIS has lost significant amounts of territory. Um, 47% of its uh, territory in Iraq, and 20%, I need to use my glasses here, Brett, just one second, 20% in Syria, according to your testimony. Unfortunately, that progress on the ground creates new threats to our national interest. As our CIA director said this last month, as you continue to make gains, ISIS will likely intensify its global terror campaign and that the administration's efforts have not reduced the group's terrorism capability and global reach. The New York Times reported recently that 1,200 people outside of Iraq and Syria have been killed in attacks either inspired or coordinated by ISIS, and nearly half of those deaths occurred uh, in attacks targeting Westerners. In the wake of recent terrorist, uh, the recent terrorist attack in Orlando, we expect you to provide, and hope you will provide, an honest assessment of where the global fight against ISIS is going and address some of the fundamental questions we all have. In particular, I'd like to get your view on what actions the coalition has taken to counter the increased terror threat posed by ISIS in spite of the organization's losses in Iraq and Syria, again, which we herald, and how the coalition plans to actually defeat ISIS militarily. Some of the other questions I hope you will answer include, do the Syrian democratic forces, and I think there's a lot of confusion about the various coalitions that are countering Assad, but also countering ISIS, which is primarily made up of Kurds with an Arab contingent, have enough people to clear ISIS from the northern Syria area, and even if we continue to take back uh, territory from ISIS, are those gains backed by political progress necessary to sustain them? Obviously, there are rubs between that group and others, rubs between that group and Turkey itself. And as we leave it uh, to its own accord, if you will, with these groups uh, taking on ISIS in their own ways and taking on Assad in their own ways, are we really creating something that down the road is going to take us to a political settlement? Or is success on the battleground leaving behind the same vacuum that led to ISIS in the first place? And finally, how do you reconcile the continued glaring disparity in Syria between a military campaign focused on ISIS and a failing diplomatic process dependent upon a transition from Assad? I don't see how the ISIS coalition can be successful while the Syrian civil war continues. This administration has declared that Assad must go, but it certainly appears as if that position is changing or has changed. I don't see how what's left of the political process possibly leads to Assad's departure, and I hope you'll really help us understand what's happening behind the scenes there. I also fear that in spite of continued attacks on our homeland, our military response to ISIS does not adequately reflect the direct nature of this threat to the United States. I think many of us grow frustrated when the administration's optimistic rhetoric does not often match the results. Additionally, much of our reliance on proxies to do the fighting is creating a range of diplomatic and political problems that will have ramifications for years to come. With that, again, I want to thank you for your service to our country, 
I want to thank you for uh, the way that you uh, talk with all of us in such a direct manner. We look forward to your testimony. With that, our distinguished ranking member, Senator Cardin. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. I first join you in welcoming Mr. McGurk here and thanking him for his service to our country in a critically important position. And I agree with the chairman's assessment. Every time you have appeared before our committee, either in open or closed sessions, uh, we learn a lot and we have a great deal of confidence in the information that you are presenting to us. So thank you again for the manner in which you've conducted um, this office. Mr. Chairman, ISIS is a global threat, both to the physical safety and the democratic values we hold dear. It destabilizes already weak states, inflicts horrible acts of brutality, and inspires radicalization of individuals to perpetuate terrorism within their own countries as we and our allies have experienced. As we see every day across the Middle East, Europe, and elsewhere, ISIS attacks and propaganda are designed not only to kill, but to turn communities against one another. Sunnis against Shia, Muslims against Christian, immigrants against citizens. To defeat ISIS, we are mobilizing the international community militarily, economically, and diplomatically to shrink ISIS safe havens, expand our humanitarian support, and combat extremism in all forms, both online and in our own political di discourse. Due to the efforts of the administration, the United States leads a 66-nation coalition united against the scourge of ISIS terrorism. In the military sphere, we are shrinking ISIS's safe havens in places like Fallujah in Iraq, in Mimbij, Syria, and Sirte, Libya. Their flow of foreign fighters has been cut and they've lost millions in revenues. Yet, as I'm sure our witness will agree, there's a lot more that needs to be done. There's no quick answers uh, to, to, this, to this challenge. These efforts have, have not been without serious cost. We stand in solidarity with countries such as Jordan, which suffered another terrorist attack in recent days. I commend our witness, Mr. McGurk, for his recent visit to, to, Syria, uh, to Jordan, where he reiterated our unwavering support to the Jordanian people. We know our global efforts to fight ISIS won't be easy. As CIA Director John Brennan te recently testified, as ISIS suffers even heavier losses, it will intensify its global terror campaign. We've got to be careful about that. We, we might be able to contain them on ground, but then what happens with global terrorism? But we must remain steadfast and redouble our efforts, especially in the newly liberated areas formerly held by ISIS. In Fallujah, as we speak, Tens of thousands of people who have been freed from ISIS ca captivity are now living in displacement camps in horrible conditions under intense summer desert heat. I commend our administration's recent pledge to provide an additional $20 million in humanitarian aid to the United Nations High Commissioner on Refugees, Iraq response. But more needs to be done. I call on our other partner nations, especially those in the Arab Gulf states, to assist Fallujah residents desperately needing water, sanitation, food, and shelter. We cannot let those who have fled ISIS suffer even more. On July 20th, the United States will join with Canada, Germany, and Japan to co-host a pledging conference in Washington. This is a critical opportunity for the international community to continue to support humanitarian and stabilization efforts in Iraq. In addition to our humanitarian efforts, our coalition must work harder on long-term reconstruction and reconciliation efforts. In the absence of an effective services, fair political participation, and good governance, the defeat of this version of ISIS will only lead to another. The real weapon against ISIS and their ilk comes not just from the barrel of a gun, but from the ballot box, 
the schoolhouse, the courts, and a growing economy. Prime Minister Abadi's needs international aid now to rebuild Ramadi and Fallujah, and he needs international support to keep spoilers such as Iran from its interference in Iraqi politics. Let me conclude with this. As I stated earlier, ISIS challenges not only our physical well-being, but our principles of pluralism and openness. Let us commit not only to defeating ISIS on the battlefield, but defeating their poisonous narrative of division. We are all in this fight together, no matter what your religion, sexual orientation, or nationality. If we are truly going to fight ISIS globally, then we must fight the forces of divisiveness at home and abroad. Mr. Chairman, I look forward to hearing from our witness. Thank you so much uh, for those comments and your leadership. With that, uh, Mr. McGurk is Special Presidential Envoy for the Global Coalition to Counter ISIS. Uh, your business card must be very large. Um, we uh, thank you for being here today. I know that you uh, realize you can summarize your comments if you wish. Uh, your written testimony without objection will be entered into the record. And with that, uh, thank you for being here. Uh, thank you, Chairman Corker, Ranking Member Cardin, members of the committee. I want to thank you for inviting me to speak to you today with an update on our global campaign to defeat the Islamic State of Iraq and the Levant, or ISIL. This hearing takes place within weeks of the mass murder against innocent Americans in Orlando, Florida. And as Director Brennan testified last week, this criminal act was an assault on the values of openness and tolerance that define us as a free nation. And we join the family and friends in mourning the loss of their loved ones, and we wish a full and speedy recovery to the wounded. While there's been no connection between the killer and these attacks in ISIL Central abroad, the attacks underscore the imperative need to defeat ISIL at its core in Iraq and Syria and across its global networks. I just returned from a visit to Iraq, Jordan, Egypt, and Israel. In Jordan, as Senator Cardin mentioned, I met with our close partner, King Abdullah, just one day after an ISIL suicide bomber killed seven Jordanian soldiers <laughs> guarding their border. In Egypt, Egyptian forces are engaged in a struggle against an ISIL branch in the Sinai, and we have offered our support and assistance. In Israel, ISIL's propaganda has sought recently to inspire attacks to compensate for losses of manpower and territory, and we must not allow them to succeed. And in Iraq, on the front lines, Iraqi forces with our support and assistance are rooting out ISIL strongholds one by one, most recently just this past weekend in Fallujah, where ISIL had held a population hostage for over 30 months. My statement today will highlight the progress we are making against ISIL, but that progress cannot discount the threats that remain nor diminish the truly unprecedented nature of a challenge that now confronts much of the world. We analyze ISIL in three dimensions, the core in Iraq and Syria, the networks that feed its strength, foreign fighter networks, propaganda networks, and financial networks, and the global affiliates, their eight in all, that seek to expand its reach, with Libya and Sinai being the most significant. Our global campaign plan, bringing together a coalition of 66 partners from around the world, seeks to defeat ISIL in each of these three areas. My written statement notes the indicators that we track, many of which are now trending in the right direction. Foreign fighters are down, and more countries than ever before are sharing information to identify those who are still traveling. Outside financing has been severed, and internal financing has taken a significant hit through painstaking intelligence work and precision, precision targeting by military forces in Iraq and Syria. ISIL's propaganda and messaging is now being challenged 24-7 through a global network of countries, civil society organizations, private companies, and individuals. ISIL's leaders are either in hiding or being killed, now at a rate of one every three days, including Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi's main deputies, terrorists named Haji Imam and Abu Sayyaf, killed by U.S. military forces. 
and ISIL's territory is shrinking, losing nearly 50% of territory it once controlled in Iraq and 20% in Syria over the last 18 months. What makes ISIL different from other terrorist organizations is its attempt to hold territory and establish a state-like entity in Iraq and Syria, what it proclaims as a self-declared and phony caliphate. This notion of a caliphate has been a primary driver in recruitment for the tens of thousands of foreign fighters that have joined ISIL in Syria and Iraq. The territory it controls also allows ISIL to extract vast resources, and most importantly for us, plan and launch highly sophisticated external attacks. The attacks we have seen in Brussels and Paris, for example, we believe stem from ISIL's external plotting network, which is based in Raqqa and has sent operatives from Syria to Europe through what is known as the Monbij pocket. That is why we must take the territory away from ISIL and, just as important, stabilize areas after ISIL, as you, you mentioned, Mr. Chairman. I'd like to highlight briefly how we are doing so, pointing to three areas on the map that I had attached to my written testimony. Number one on the map is the Monbij pocket. Three weeks ago, a coalition led by the Monbij Military Council, and these are local people seeking to liberate their own territory from ISIL, launched an attack across the Euphrates River with a mission to liberate the strategic city of Monbij. This force is approximately 3,500 strong, and it's made up primarily of Arabs, nearly 80% Arab, with Kurds and advice and assist, assistance being provided by our special forces. Putting together this coalition took painstaking work, military and diplomatic, but the real results thus far are promising. The force has liberated 1,000 square kilometers and has begun to push into Monbij City neighborhood by neighborhood. As they move, they are acquiring a great deal of information on the ISIL foreign fighter network. We believe this model, recruiting local forces and providing them support to liberate their own areas, is a model for future operations to isolate Raqqa. From the other end of the Monbij pocket, moderate opposition groups are beginning to push east against ISIL. This has been and will remain a tough fight. ISIL is ordered to fight to the death, but now that we are moving on two fronts, ISIL's defenses are beginning to degrade, and we are hopeful that coalition-backed forces can take this territory away from ISIL entirely. Number five on the map is Mosul. Iraqi and Kurdish Peshmerga forces have launched a series of operations coordinated from a joint base in Makmur, where we tragically lost a U.S. Marine last month. These operations, one of which just south of Mosul is ongoing at this hour, are setting the conditions for the isolation and ultimate liberation of Mosul. Mosul will be a significant military challenge, but also a political, diplomatic, and humanitarian challenge. The planning is now underway. Last week in Erbil, in the Iraqi Kurdistan region, I was invited together with our talented ambassador, Stu Jones, to attend a meeting with President Massoud Barzani and Falah Fayyad, the Iraqi National Security Advisor, to address the difficult political and humanitarian challenges of the Mosul campaign. This is one of the more positive meetings I have attended in Iraq, with all sides focused on the coming liberation of Mosul and what must be done, including the need for diverse communities in Iraq to work together. The Iraqi government agreed in this meeting to pay and equip 15,000 local fighters from Nineveh province for the Mosul campaign, representing Arabs, Kurds, Shabaks, Christians, and Yazidis. <coughs> Many of these fighters have already been identified, and our coalition will proudly help train them. There's also emerging consensus on the basic stabilization arrangements for Mosul after ISIL, building on the model that has worked in Tikrit and now underway in Anbar, with local leaders empowered to restore life to their communities and return the population with significant backing and support from our global coalition. Finally, in Anbar, number seven and eight on the map, Iraqi forces together with over 20,000 local tribal fighters have over the past few months alone liberated Ramadi, Fallujah, Heat, Rutba, and broke a two-year siege of the city of Haditha. 
This is significant progress, testament to our coalition's training of Iraqi forces who have not lost a battle now in over a year, and key decisions by Prime Minister Abadi to empower the local people in Anbar in their own liberation from ISIL. This is not to overshadow the serious problems that have occurred, including reports of human rights abuses and caring for IDPs. But there, the Iraqi government has taken immediate measures to address problems, holding people accountable for abuse and flowing resources where they are needed. There is much work to do, particularly in Fallujah, where IDPs last week overwhelmed the capacity of local responders. Thanks to quick decisions in Baghdad and here in Washington, tens of millions of dollars in aid is now flowing to these refugee camps, and the UN is hopeful to begin <laughs> returns next month. As Senator Cardin mentioned, we will also host a very important pledging conference on July 20th here in Washington to generate the resources that are needed to care for these people. Returning people to, the, to their homes is a key priority for our coalition. And to date in Iraq, 770,000 people have returned to areas liberated from ISIL, including 95% of the population of Tikrit, thanks to the support from the Iraqi government and a stabilization fund from our coalition. Accordingly, as we look to accelerate the defeat of ISIL in these areas, we are equally focused, most importantly, on what comes after ISIL, as you mentioned, Mr. Chairman, and ensuring its defeat is lasting. In sum, we've made progress over the last year against ISIL, but there's a great deal we have left to do on the ground in Iraq and Syria, here at home and around the world against this unprecedented challenge. And I'm grateful for the opportunity again to appear before you, and I'm happy to address your questions. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm gonna reserve my time for interjections and turn to the ranking member. Once again, thank you for your testimony. I, I, I wanna follow up on the point that you raised, Chairman raised, I raised, and that is what happens after we take territory. We've had military success in the past. Can we hold that military success? Are we able to develop functioning governments that can protect all of the communities? So as in, in Iraq, as we're starting to get t more territory, Fallujah having fallen, uh, the Sunni civilian population is justifiably concerned as to their safety as it relates to the Shia militia. What steps are we taking to protect the civilian population in these areas that we have uh, been able to militarily reclaim? So, Senator, thank you. This is a really, it's a, a primary focus of ours from day one. And on the positive side, so far in Iraq, no areas that have been retaken from ISIL uh, that have been liberated from ISIL, have, has ISIL been able to retake? And that's a fairly significant given um, how difficult the situation is in Iraq. What we've done from day one, this really goes back to the fall of 2014, you know, we're not in the business of reconstructing Iraq, of repeating mistakes that we made in the past. We've tried to revolutionize how we, how we do this. We have a Prime Minister Abadi, who's a real partner in Baghdad, who believes in decentralizing power as much as possible and empowering local people. So. Uh, the fundamental example of this was in Tikrit. Tikrit is a primarily Sunni city, an iconic Sunni city in the heart of a mixed uh, province of Saladin province. It was entirely depopula depopulated by ISIL in the summer of 2014. It was a site of mass atrocities, thousands of people killed in, uh, in mass killings. Once it was liberated, through the coalition, we were able to flood resources to Tikrit through a stabilization fund that we established through the coalition. And this stabilization fund is focused on the necessities of getting people back to their homes. And returning people to their homes, it's important to recognize, we've looked at this historically in conflicts like this, one of the hardest things to do in the world. It can take years, if ever. And in Tikrit, by empowering the governor, by empowering the local leaders, by making sure the resources are there, 
the returnees eventually reaches a tipping point, and now we have almost the entire city is back in the streets of Tikrit. There are local people, Tikritis, uh, guarding the streets, giving... giving and, and how do you deal with the Shia militia? How does the Abadi government deal with Well, that? it's a great question. First of all, uh, Shia militias have to act under the control of the Iraqi government, the Iraqi state. That's a fundamental uh, principle of the government of Iraq. Um, we think most of these popular mobilization forces do operate under the control of the Iraqi state, but about 15 to 20 percent of them actually do not, and those groups are a fundamental problem. The number one thing we do is try to make sure they stay out of Sunni populated areas uh, where they can cause real problems. So in Tikrit, for example, um, Shia militias are not inside the streets of Tikrit. That's one thing that gave the population uh, the confidence to return. Um, we have a principle when we support Iraqi forces in the military campaign. We will only support forces on the ground operating strictly under Iraqi command and control. That means going from the ground up an Iraqi chain of command into a joint operations center where we're working with Iraqi commanders. If there's a unit that is not operating under that structure, it doesn't get any support from Are you from confident us. Fallujah will be able to maintain the safety of Sunni civilians? So, Fallujah, of course, just happened. They just completed the liberation of the last neighborhood over the weekend. Uh, we have about 80,000 uh, displaced people. Um, I, I'm meeting the head of uh, one of the UN programs running this later this week. They're hopeful that all of these IDPs will be under shelter by the middle of this week and to begin returns uh, next month. What's also somewhat encouraging about uh, Fallujah is that the destruction in the city is, looks to be fairly minimal compared to other uh, operations. So we're hopeful that we can return the people of Fallujah to their streets as soon as possible. The government can lead that process. And of course, uh, these Shia militia groups that operate outside the rule of law have to be outside the city, otherwise people will not return. So absolutely, and um, we have a plan with local Fallujah police, policemen from Fallujah have been trained for really the last year waiting to go back to, to guard their streets. That's what we did in Tikrit, and we're gonna try in Fallujah. And you think, uh, let, let me, uh, I'm gonna ask, get one more question in on this round, if I might. And, and that is uh, the legitimacy of ISIL. They were defining it by territory. They're now losing territory. Will they be defining it through international terrorism by the sensational uh, covered uh, attacks that we see all too often? Can we expect that that may accelerate? And that what can we do to counter that if that appears to be their game plan on legitimacy? So, Senator, ISIL has always talked about external attacks. I think I, I testified even back in late 2013, talking about what Baghdadi was saying, even about attacking. But as they start to lose territory, is it likely that they may accelerate that part of their campaign? Yeah, they are calling, so their, their core banner in their propaganda has been the caliphate, retaining and expanding the caliphate. And in their last main statement by their spokesman, as I mentioned in my written testimony, is a very different message. He actually says, we might lose all of our territory. We might lose Raqqa, Sirte, and Mosul, but we're still gonna be around, still join us, and they're trying to inspire these lone wolf attacks around the world. And um, this is what Director Brennan testified to last week. This is extraordinarily difficult to stop. Uh, we have to remain vigilant. That's why we have a global coalition, not just for Iraq and Syria, but to make sure that we're attacking the foreign fighter networks and sharing information, working with Interpol, so that as these people try to travel, they can be picked up. And we're doing better at that now, um, but, but we have a ways to go, and we just, we can't let up. Because, you know, ISIL split from, it's Al-Qaeda in Iraq, they split in two directions. One, Baghdadi establishing a caliphate, a state-like entity, and the other branch, Al-Nusra, which is now Al-Qaeda in Syria, 
which doesn't really have that notion of establishing a caliphate, but they're both Al-Qaeda. They both want to kill Westerners. They both want to kill anyone that doesn't agree with them, and ISIL will continue to try to inspire external attacks. One thing we're doing, though, on the ground, we're not just taking back territory. As we take back important territory, we're collecting substantial amounts of information about the foreign fighter network, about how it's put together, who leads it, and that helps us really root it out, not only in Iraq and Syria, but in the branches and little networks that exist in France and other places. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Thank you. Senator Johnson. Uh, Mr. McGirt, thanks for coming here. The, the analogy I've been using is that of a beehive. If you have one in your backyard, you can go out there and poke it with a stick and do damage to it, but you stir up the bees and they actually become more dangerous. Uh, You've obviously been reporting on a fair amount of progress. Uh, we've been making some gains. We're getting information. We're taking back territory. And yet CIA director did testify before the Senate Intelligence Committee and said that uh, our efforts have not reduced terrorism, their terrorism capability and global reach. And they remain a largely, they re remain a formidable, resilient, and largely cohesive enemy. Do you disagree with that assessment? Uh, I, I, I agree with uh, the director, of course, that this is something, and I think you've seen in my testimony, I am the last one working on this most complex issue every single day to diminish this significant threat. Um, you know, let me just put a number on it. 40,000 foreign fighters have traveled into Iraq and Syria over the last four or five years, uh, indoctrinated with this jihadi ideology. That's almost twice as many from the numbers we've seen that went to Afghanistan in the 80s, and we know where that eventually led to. So. This is something we haven't seen before, and you add to it uh, social media and the, the, the speed of international travel, everything now, it is an unprecedented challenge and is going to be with us for years. So again, do you agree with CIA Director Brennan's assessment that we have not reduced our capability, they remain a largely formidable, resilient, and cohesive enemy? It is, well, it's not the entity, certainly, that it was 18 months ago. And you know, the, the attacks like Brussels and Paris are attacks that they plan from their safe havens and sanctuary. So those attacks, we believe, were, were organized in Raqqa, planned. Those sophisticated types of attacks, it's harder for them to do when you're pressuring them and, and pressuring their territory. The lone wolf attacks are the types of things that are just are very difficult to, to stop. But my point being is, until we actually defeat them, I mean, again, we can, we can nibble around the edges, we can make some progress, uh, we, we can push them out of Iraq, but they remain in Syria. I mean. I have yet to hear out of this administration a game plan for actually defeating them. I mean, I hear the, the, the game plan for making progress, but actually defeating them. And, and th that's the point I'm trying to make, is if we don't defeat them, if we don't deny them the territory, if we don't deny them that, that caliphate, if we don't take away those safe havens, <coughs> they're incredibly sophisticated. They're, they're inspiring the lone wolf type of activity we've seen in San Bernardino, now in Orlando, tragically. There, there was, by the way, a foiled plot against the Masonic Temple in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Uh, also probably ISIS-inspired. So we have to defeat them. Where's the game plan for that? No, Senator, our, our strategy is defeat. And we put, it's a three-year three campaign plan to degrade and defeat. And to defeat, you do have to take away their territory. So in Iraq, it's been city by city. In Mosul, if I can go through in some detail, but in the Mosul, we've been focused on isolating their key population nodes, cutting off their connections between Raqqa and Mosul. The operation in Mombaj is about isolating Raqqa, and after Monbij, we will move on Raqqa. So that's so when, when the three When did the three-year clock start? Because President Obama declared our goal of degrading and ultimately defeating ISIS 22 months ago. We're almost two years into it. Or when, when, the, when the clock start ticking on our three-year plan? We put, we put the campaign together in September of 2014. 
And it, you know, it, takes, it took time to generate the local forces to be able to take on what at the time was the most formidable military force on the do, ground. Do you think then that we will have ISIS defeat, in other words, deny them the territory, deny them the safe havens, even in Syria? within another, basically you're saying about 14 months and if it's a three-year game plan. Um, I wanted to go a lot faster than that. One of the reasons I was in Iraq last week was to focus on the Mosul campaign. And we, don't, we won't put a timeline on the Mosul campaign, but we'd like to do it as soon as possible. Uh, one reason we're moving on Monbij right now is to set the conditions in place to move on Raqqa. And the force that has to move on Raqqa has to be a predominantly Arab force. That's why we've increased our special forces inside Syria to train and equip that force. And after Monbij, the plan is Raqqa. So we are, we are moving at a tempo that um, I believe will lead to the ultimate defeat in three, of ISIS. In three, within 14 months, if it's three-year game plan? I mean, I, we're, we're not going to defeat them within 14 months, are we? Well, I want to go, I wanted to go a lot faster than that. Out, I think out of that's, Mosul. That's, that's my point. We're not doing this fast enough, are we? We're, we're poking the hive with a stick. It becomes more dangerous. We haven't reduced their terrorism capability or their global reach. When are we going to have a game plan from this administration to actually accomplish the goal defeating them? It's not going to happen in the three-year time frame. Is it going to take? What's, what's it going to take? Well, I understand your question, Senator. Let me just kind of put a – we want to speed up their defeat in Mosul. So one thing we're doing you – know, this is on the military side. I mentioned it's not just the military, but we're using Apache helicopters. We're using forward advisors to begin this operation towards Mosul. There's an operation going right now south of Mosul that is critical to isolating ISIL inside Mosul. The Mombaj operation, it's ongoing right now. It's hard fighting. Once that is done, that sets the conditions for Raqqa. So it is a step-by-step -step process to get to Raqqa and Mosul. We're beginning to totally isolate their presence in Raqqa and Mosul, and I believe we're setting the conditions in place to get them out of both of those cities. Listen, I, I appreciate your efforts, but I, I agree with you. We are not moving anywhere close to fast enough. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Kane. Thank you, Mr. Chair, and thank you, Mr. McGurk. Um, I'm not going to repeat. Uh, lines of uh, questioning that I have engaged in in earlier hearings. I share some of Senator Johnson's critique and disagree with him on some points, but the main disagreement is that, that we're not moving fast enough. I think Congress has been in a position where we've wanted to criticize the administration, but we're 22 months into a war that we haven't even really debated and voted on here. I just compare this with the level of detail that we just undertook to try to implement very piecemeal, narrow reforms in the Department of Defense and the NDAA bill. The amount of discussion in this body about an ongoing war where 17 people have been killed and others have been injured stuns me, but let's just pass that by because I'm well on the record about it and get into some particulars. I, I do uh, congratulate our troops for the, and the coalition for the effort that they've made to succeed on the battlefield to shrink the territory that ISIL holds in Iraq and Syria. And I think that's been very notable, and I expect that to continue. But let's talk about three areas beyond the, the, the original battlefield where I have concerns. Let's start with, uh, with Libya. ISIL in Libya has been losing its center of gravity in CERT. That's been a positive. But where does the coalition believe that the next front will open up in North Africa? There are about 5,000 ISIL uh, fighters in Libya. Where are they now located? What's being done to target them? Because I think North Africa, both because of dangers in Africa, but proximity to Europe, uh, the ISIL presence there is of significant concern. That's a very good question, Senator. One reason I was in Cairo last week was to discuss the whole North Africa region, including, of course, Libya. Um, and Libya is a, is a good example because it, it's what just highlights how complicated this is. You know, most foreign fighters that have joined ISIL 
have come out of Tunisia, what is kind of seen as the bright spot of the Arab Spring. Mm -hmm. And it shows that what is indoctrinating these young people is, you know, some of it is sectarianism that exists in Iraq and Syria, some of it, but some of it is something else. We have 6,000 Tunisians, many of whom have gone to Libya. Um, and this is a real problem. Tunisia is a close partner in the coalition, working closely with them, and we're working with Egypt on the situation in, in Libya. So, but also the bright spot in Libya is that the Libyan people are rejecting uh, the presence of Daesh. So we were concerned about 90 days ago or so when we were really looking at the Libya situation of this kind of hockey stick-like growth of the acceleration of ISIL in Libya. Is this, are they matching what they tried to do in Iraq and Syria? And it turns out, at least that hasn't been the case. They've kind of plateaued at about you know, five, 6,000 uh, fighters. The numbers vary, but that's, that's our assessment. They're isolated now in CERT. And the Misratan forces and other forces aligned with the new government of national court have made real progress, more progress than we had anticipated. And so now we are looking at how do we accelerate that progress that's being made. Um, so I'm fairly confident now that uh, we, have a, we have a strategy in place in Libya that it can, can at least begin to really degrade that ISIL presence. Libya has a host of other problems. Um, but the concern we had of this accelerating growth of ISIL in Libya, um, it's something that appears to have been mitigated, but we have to keep at it. I'm going to move to the Philippines. There has been a recent announcement by ISIL of, a, of an aggressive recruitment effort uh, in the Philippines, um, working under the leadership there of Abu Abdallah. And there's even been recruiting efforts in countries like Malaysia to get foreign fighters to go not to Syria and Iraq, but to go to the Philippines. Talk a little bit about ISIL, the worries about ISIL efforts uh, in Asia, the Philippines, and other nations in Southeast Asia. So uh, another great question. I was in a year or so ago uh, in um, Singapore, Malaysia, talking about this, the growth in Southeast Asia. Many of these are pre-existing terrorist groups that then fly the flag of ISIL. Just like Boko Haram. Exactly. Pledged an allegiance. Exactly. In and the question we ask is, what, what is the common denominator here all around the world for why these groups are flying the flag of ISIL? And it is this notion of this caliphate, we hear this everywhere, this notion of a caliphate, this kind of magnet, this historic movement, which is one reason why shrinking the territory is so important, even to drying up their global affiliates in a place like Southeast Asia. So um, I saw the announcement in the Philippines recently. Um, again, I think, and I mentioned this in my written testimony, we can't get too distracted by every time a pre-existing terrorist group flies the flag of ISIL because we're already dealing with those problems in a whole variety of ways. It is where we see, as we saw in Libya, ISIL Central and, and Raqqa sending some of its best leaders into Libya to establish a branch. Uh, that was a terrorist named Abu Nabil. We targeted him and killed him. In Sinai, we've seen money and leaders mm -hmm. try to transfer to Sinai. That's where we really get concerned. We haven't seen that uh, in Southeast Asia. So we have to work with our partners throughout the world, but particularly in Southeast Asia, to make sure that these problems remain, uh, remain contained. But we're not seeing that kind of like Libya-like direct transfer of resources from ISIL Central as all the way out to mm -hmm. Southeast Asia. All right. Thank you. My time's up. Thanks, Mr. Chair. Thank you. I, I will use my first interjection. I, in response, I uh, like the State Department, which Mr. McGurk works for, like the Pentagon, like the legal department from the White House, and like the White House, agree that this administration has all legal authority necessary to combat ISIS. And so just want that to be stated. Uh, certainly been multiple hearings on how to deal with this. And I personally have pushed back against efforts to limit uh, his ability 
to conduct the operations, which much of the discussions around an AUMF has been about. So I just want to say again, I support uh, the efforts that are underway. I'd like to see it happen in a much more expeditious manner. I know it's creating threats to our homeland, which we have got to counter, but I do support uh, the administration's statement that they have the legal basis uh, to, to do what they're doing. Um, and I do want to do everything I can to keep us as a body from limiting their ability to do that. Uh, with that, I'll turn to uh, Senator Flake. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thanks for the testimony. <clears throat> uh, turning to your statement about uh, being able to deny them territory and uh, impacting their ability to uh, uh, foment terrorism elsewhere or direct activities, are we seeing a difference uh, in their ability in that uh, you know, their main headquarters in Raqqa, uh, Syria, really hasn't been impacted? How much of the activities that we see elsewhere are being directed from Raqqa or from areas that we have taken back. Uh, excellent. So their ability to move fighters from Raqqa across the battlefield in Iraq and Syria, but most importantly from Raqqa out of Syria, uh, has been significantly degraded. Because of supply routes because being of, challenged? Yeah, because or what, we have what? cut off the main roads between Raqqa and Mosul. They're now forced <laughs> onto back roads. We, of course, have a special forces uh, targeting team based in northern Iraq that goes after them uh, when we're able to see the leaders, of course. And so we've greatly degraded their ability to move fighters around. But most important for our homeland security, and that's why this operation in Mombaj is so important, is that the sophisticated attacks like Paris and Brussels planned in Raqqa, they go up through this Mombaj pocket area, they coordinate and organize in Mombaj city, and then move out through Turkey to conduct their attacks. We've worked with Turkey to close up that border on its, on its side, and the Turks have done an awful lot, uh, and, and we commend them for that. But until we take that territory away, uh, ISIL's still able to move in a way that uh, we're not comfortable with, which is why this operation in Mombij is so critical. So it's much harder for them to move now, uh, but don't take my word for it. Even in their own statements in Dabig magazine, in which they kind of put out to their potential adherents, right. they're saying, hey, don't come to Syria anymore, you know? Uh, do an attack at home or go to Libya. And that's because it's much harder for them to get into Syria. And we have a ton of information on this, as we see every morning, in terms of their inability to get people in. And once they're in, it's very hard for them to get out. And we want to make sure they can't get people into Syria. And once they're in Syria, they're never going to get out. I mean, that's kind of a, the essence of what we're trying to do with the foreign fighters. Right. You mentioned in your testimony that we're killing their leadership at the rate of uh, one every three days. Uh, what impact has that had on their, their planning abilities or the, the focus or or priorities that they set, uh, whether it's a caliphate or external attacks? So I think, Senator, I testified before this committee in the summer of 2014, about a month after Mosul fell. And what we were seeing then was a highly sophisticated military-like organization with command and control, able to maneuver around the battlefield and mass force, take entire cities. It can't do that anymore. I mean, their leaders have, are having a very hard time communicating. They're very, having a very hard time organizing where they're going to put their resources. So we've really degraded their ability uh, to command and control across Iraq and Syria, which is one of the preconditions to actually defeating them. So taking out their leaders is not, uh, you know, it, it's not a sufficient condition, but it's a necessary condition in order to actually degrading the overall network. Right. Turn to Iran for a minute. Uh, since the uh, nuclear deal was struck, we'd hoped that uh, some of their posture uh, in the region would change. Uh, has their posture changed in, Sy uh, in Syria? Have we seen a change 
in terms of Iran's behavior or their willingness to work with other groups uh, uh, in a positive way, or is it all still negative? Um, I, in my role, have not seen a significant change in, in Iranian behavior. Uh, they, you know, they are, ISIL is a threat uh, to Iran. They are fighting ISIL from time to time, uh, but they're primarily working to prop up the Assad regime. And they're also supporting some of these, uh, some of these militia groups that I mentioned to, in uh, Senator Cardin's question that are operating outside the, the legal authority of the Iraqi state, uh, which is a, a threat to Iraq's own sovereignty, um, are you know, kind of supported by Iran. And that's a, a huge problem. We have not seen that diminish since the nuclear deal, certainly. All right. Thank you. Just in closing, let me just say I, I share Senator Kane's view that uh, Congress ought to weigh in with an AUMF, um, not to question whether or not we have the authority or the executive branch has the authority to wage this war. Uh, even putting that aside, I think it's valuable uh, for our adversaries and our allies uh, to know that we speak with one voice here. As you mentioned, this is going to go on for a long, long time. And I think uh, we would all benefit uh, if the Congress weighed in more heavily. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Thank you. Senator Shaheen. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you, Mr. McGurk, for the efforts that you are undertaking. Um, I'm sure you're aware that there was a widely reported story this week about weapons um, being stolen in Jordan. To what extent do we think any of those weapons are going to ISIS? Uh, Senator, I've seen those reports. I just can't address uh, the kind of the the, uh, the roots of that story. I could maybe address in a different setting. And to what extent does a story like that and the ability to steal from under our noses and the noses of um, the Jordanians, who are one of our most important allies in this fight, um, uh, are they used as propaganda for ISIS in? Um, attracting new fighters and, and promoting their cause? Uh, well, what I will say is having just been in Jordan, I met their entire national security team. They are one of our closest partners in the region. Uh, uh, we're supporting their armed forces uh, 100%. Uh, they're on the very front line of this fight, and um, I think they would be just as concerned as anyone here with uh, stories like that. Um, well, I certainly agree. I think Jordan has been a terrific ally which is all the more reason why we need to get to the bottom of what's gone on there and address it in a way that doesn't allow it to continue to happen. Um, let me ask, because it's very comparatively um, easy and concrete to be able to track what's happening on the battlefield with ISIS, to be able to talk about what the efforts are to address them, to be able to talk about who in their leadership we have taken out. I think it's much more difficult to, to talk and to address the underlying governance issues that have um, allowed ISIS to metastasize, um, much harder to address the, um, the messaging that ISIS does to attract new fighters. Can you talk about the extent to which this effort is engaged with both of those um, more difficult challenges? It's extremely difficult, and it's why there's this balance between speed and sustainability. I mean, it's true. We could maybe do some things to really speed it up, but then you won't have sustainable gains. You have to have the, before you do a major operation to retake a city, you have to have in place who's going to hold the city, who's going to govern the city, what's the humanitarian. You have to have everything in place. Uh, this is extraordinarily difficult. Um, so what we try to do, particularly in Iraq, and um, I think we've had some success here, 
is to make sure those conditions are in place before uh, we really move to clear out ISIL from populated areas. And uh, the governing philosophy of the new government of Iraq led by Prime Minister Abadi is more decentralization, more federalism, more empowering uh, local people to control their affairs. And that's very important. And it's something that we very much support. Uh, we've seen the success I mentioned in Tikrit. Uh, in Ramadi, the capital of Anbar province, similarly, about 60,000 people returned to their homes shortly after uh, ISIL was, was uh, pushed out of Ramadi. But 100 tragically were killed by these booby traps and IEDs that ISIL, as they leave, they put booby traps in people's closets and refrigerators, and that's how barbaric this organization is. Right. Um, and so we now have, through the coalition, we raised $15 million immediately. We now have uh, demining experts on the ground in Ramadi clearing block by block, and that's actually going quite well. But it's also an indicator of how difficult this is. But the heart of your question is really is really important because we can't we're not just we can't just defeat ISIL. We have to deliver a lasting defeat. All of these pieces have to come together. Uh, it is one of the hardest things to do uh, imaginable. But I think if you look at Tikrit, if you look at what we're trying to do in Ramadi, if you look at the mobilization of the Anbar tribes in Anbar province, we would never have been able to clear all these this territory in Anbar province all the way out to Rutba on the Jordanian border without the support of the local tribes. That took a lot of work. It took a lot of great work from our special forces are out there working with them and Al-Assad Air Base way out there by Haditha. Um, but it's really, it's begun to generate momentum. So you have to pull all these pieces together in order to deliver a sustainable defeat of ISIL. Thank you. Um, I think CIA Director Brennan and others actually have talked about as we make gains on the battlefield against ISIS that there is a greater likelihood that we will see terrorist attacks in, in the West and other parts of the world to try and draw attention away from what's happening on the battlefield. Do you share that assessment? I would just, again, I think ISIL's been talking about attacking us for years, so it's not something new. The Brussels and Paris attacks were organized, you know, a long time ago, even before we started taking their territory away. What I do think they will try to do as they're losing territory, as they're losing their central narrative of this caliphate, this kind of state that they are creating, they will try to inspire through the internet these lone wolf type types of attacks. And you know, any deranged individual that wants to commit a crime can suddenly fly the banner of ISIL and get an international headline. And they recognize this and they're trying to inspire it. So I think the risk of that is something that is very much with us, will be with us for a long time. Um, but we will push them out of Mosul, we will push them out of Raqqa. But the ideology that's underpinning uh, this kind of jihadi ideology, and uh, I call it takfiri tech ideology, in which anybody who disagrees with them deserves to die. That's what they believe. It's completely crazy. Um, that is going to be with us for a long time. We have to defeat them on the battlefield, but there's only so much the United States can do. We also need our partners in the Gulf and Saudi Arabia and critical partners of our coalition to fight that ideological battle, uh, and, th and they're doing so. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. If I could just interject, the, the uh, certainly agree on the ideological battle. Um, we continue to hear from foreign ministers of uh, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, other places about their desire to more fully uh, enter uh, the battle on the ground, if you will. And of course, we hear lots of things. Uh, unless we see something, um, it's not real. Um, they then talk about how uh, the U.S., they have concerns about the United States' commitment. Can you share with us the reality of, with the right effort, uh, Saudi Arabia and others joining us uh, more fully on the ground? So 
I've been to the Gulf quite a bit um, over the last year, and the Saudis, of course, and the Emiratis, uh, very focused on the conflict of Yemen. And as we hope, the peace process there gets underway and that conflict can begin to wind down. Uh, there will be an increasing focus on, on Daesh. We, of course, want these countries to join the air campaign to be a, uh, a part of it. Um, and I, we've heard these same uh, requests from the possibility of you know, troops on the ground, things like that. Very important that all of this is organized under our, our coalition effort. Um, we, of course, have planners from all these countries in CENTCOM about the next steps of what we're going to do. But where I think, and I was in Saudi Arabia uh, with the president at the GCC summit about six weeks or so ago, and you know the Saudis make a very compelling case, and it's true that ISIL is a fundamental threat to them. I mean, they have plots within Saudi Arabia. Uh, you know, almost every few weeks they're breaking up a plot, and so it is this ideological struggle that has to be led by the Saudis, by the Egyptians, by the leaders in the Muslim world where I really think they can take a leading role in that, you know, we're working with them on that, but they really need to be the... But as it relates, I don't want to take up too much time here, as it relates to them actually participating, um, they cite in closed doors with us, uh, it's not confidential, but they cite uh, the lack of U.S. leadership and their distrust and therefore their unwillingness to, to really get engaged, uh, away from the ideological, but back to the what's actually happening on the ground, especially in Syria. Um, do you believe that the comments they're making are real? I think uh, we, we work very hard to match capabilities and capacity with needs. And I think I could go through with you very, in a very detailed way uh, in a different setting, kind of what we're doing with each coalition partner. Um, we would like to see those countries uh, you know, participate in the air campaign. They had been participating in the air campaign the Jordanians are participating in the air campaign, and we really need more assets in the sky as we develop more intelligence and more targets. Um, but in terms of ground capabilities, I think our focus on empowering local actors to liberate their own territory is the most sustainable solution for defeating ISIL, and that will remain our, our fundamental approach. Senator Isaacson. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. If, if my memory serves me correctly, uh, back in 2014, was we drew about two or three red lines in the sand for Assad not to cross. Is that not right? Weren't we going to actually do a strategic bombing in Syria at one point in time, and we backed away from that? 2013, 2013. Uh, late August, early September. My, my, thank you, Mr. Chairman. My, my point is I remember that as well, and we didn't really have the resolve in the Senate body itself to really move forward on that strategic attack, and Senate, uh, Secretary Kerry kept modifying what that attack would be, and pretty, pretty much we... We backed away from it, drew a couple more lines in the sand, and then had the 22-month game plan that we're into now on going after ISIL. There hasn't been that much mention of Assad in today's conversation, or for that matter, much of the conversation at all. Where does he fit in in terms of this game plan to take out ISIL right now? Well, we believe very strongly we have to have a, a political transition process that can lead to a sustainable uh, transition inside Syria. And uh, so long as Assad is leading the government in Damascus, there is no way this war will ever end. That's something we have stated very clearly to the Russians. It's something we've stated very clearly to all the backers of the Assad regime. This war simply will not end uh, with Assad leading the regime in Damascus. And it's this question of uh, the best way to uh, set the incentives for a sustainable transition. 
Uh, I think militarily enforced regime change is something that uh, we've seen before and is extremely risky and leads to unintended consequences. Um, but you know, uh, the Russians have said that they support a transition in Damascus. The Russians have claimed that they will support a cessation of hostilities on the ground in Syria. President Putin went to his people and said, we will support a cessation of hostilities inside Syria. And quite frankly, uh, the Russians have not done in this regard uh, what they promised. And this remains a very serious problem. Are the Iranians the main strength behind Assad? Are they, are they the, the force behind him right now? You know, the, the level of influence in Damascus is something that uh, we look at very closely. It's kind of a sliding scale. I mean, the, the Russians were uh, kind of seen as the main uh, influencer maybe about four months ago. And I think more recently we're seeing the Iranians uh, start to eclipse them a little bit. Um, so, but both of them are backing the Assad regime. And, uh, you know, we, we say to the Russians, and you guys are in, look at this, you guys are in bed with the Assad regime, with Hezbollah, with the Quds Force, with Qasem Soleimani. I mean, what exactly are you guys, uh, what's your long-term strategy here? And I frankly don't think they have one. So they came in to try to, uh, you know, bulk up the Assad regime, and I, then I thought they could kind of find a glide path out of Syria, but that's really not proven to be the case. The only way uh, to have a sustainable uh, solution in Syria is a political transition in which all forces can organize against these extremist threats. And that's my point. Given the fact that there's not one on the horizon, a political transition, given the fact that Syria has just been decimated with this civil war over four or five years, given the fact the Iranians are backing Assad pretty steadily all the way through, there appears to be no end to Assad's ability to stay in place. Is that not correct? Uh, well, I think... Uh, you hit, your head, you hit the head on the very difficult situation in Syria. So, uh, what, again, I go back to what the Russians said they would do, but they're not doing, the cessation of hostilities, trying to de-escalate the violence, trying to organize forces against, uh, against ISIL and Nusra. Where this really comes to a head is in Aleppo. In Aleppo, there's multiple offensives going on. There's an offensive in southwest Aleppo that is led by the Nusra Front, led by Al-Qaeda. And al-Nusra is not a part of the cessation of hostilities. And the Russians know they have every right to go after and defend Aleppo against that offensive. But what they're doing instead is launching a, the regime is launching a counteroffensive against the moderate opposition in the north, groups that are a part of the cessation of hostilities. So it is a very serious situation, Senator, and it's requiring a, a lot of our attention and focus. And um, the Russians will either live up to their commitments or not. But right now, uh, Putin is either proving unable to deliver on what he told his people he would deliver or, or unwilling. Well, I know this is a sensitive subject and there's certain things you can't address, probably certain things I shouldn't say or ask, but it, it appears to me that given Assad's backing by the Iranians and where he is and what he's endured for the past three years, and given the matrix that's going on right now in that part of the world, ISIL, which we're trying to eradicate, going back to Senator Johnson's comments and his questioning, in the, in the end game, as long as Assad is there, it's going to be very difficult to take ISIL out because they benefit from his staying in that power and giving them the authority to do what they do. Is that not right? Well, and I'll give you where, where, the, where the civil war uh, de-escalates, where you start to see, uh, and we saw that in the south, for example, south of Damascus, <laughs> it frees up opposition groups to actually fight ISIL. Where the civil war is escalating, um, opposition groups are obviously fighting the regime, and that gives ISIL and Nusra uh, more space to grow. 
So dealing with the Civil War is a, is a fundamental element that in order for a long-term sustainable solution, not just against ISIL, but also Nusra, which is Al-Qaeda in Syria, uh, you know, we, have to, we have to address. Thank you for your service. We Thank appreciate you. it very much. Thank you. Before turning to Senator Menendez, uh, you had mentioned that when you take out uh, leadership, you're learning a great deal about some of the relationships they have in other places. Can you tell us where the central nervous system is relative to the inspiration efforts to try to get people here in the United States and other places to conduct operations? Uh, against Westerners. Where, where is that central nervous system housed? Is it in the caliphate or is it outside? I'll give you an example. It also is how example of how difficult this is. So um, I believe from everything I see, it's in Raqqa. And their leader of trying to instigate these attacks was Jihadi John. Jihadi John is known as the uh, brutally uh, murderer of American hostages. But he was also a computer hacker. And he would sit in his apartment in Raqqa all day trying to inspire attacks in the West, here, at, here in our homeland and in other uh, partner nations. He would just sit there in the apartment with hundreds of civilians in the apartment building, and it creates a real dilemma. Uh, you have to take out Jihadi John. We know where he is, but you don't want to destroy an apartment building with hundreds of people. So um, we waited for him to come outside one day and were able, with a very precise precision, uh, eliminate Jihadi John. He was their number one guy on the computer all day trying to inspire attacks. He was sitting in Raqqa in a crowded apartment building. So I believe the heartbeat of it is Raqqa, and that's why after Monbij, uh, we are going to organize a force to move down and isolate Raqqa. Thank you. Senator Menendez. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Mr. McGurk, I have always appreciated uh, your candor in closed sessions. I appreciate your efforts, and obviously we all wish you the best of luck. But I, ha I have some real concerns as I've read the testimony and listened to some of your responses. So let me try to uh, see if you can help me assuage them. I want to return to uh, CIA Director Brennan's remarks uh, where he said, unfortunately, I quote, unfortunately, despite all progress against ISIL on the battlefield and in the financial realm, our efforts have not reduced the group's terrorism capability and global reach. And goes on to say the group would have to suffer even heavier losses of territory, manpower, and money for its terrorist capacity to decline significantly. And in fact, as the pressure mounts on ISIL, we judge that it will intensify its global terror campaign and maintain its dominance on the global terrorism agenda. And then I heard your response to Senator Cardin when he asked uh, what happens, uh, for example, in Iraq after we take territory back and your response was that we uh, are not repeating past mistakes, uh, we're not reconstructing Iraq. But that sort of like begs the question, aren't we actually repeating uh, past mistakes? Um, when you point to the map and you talk about uh, Anbar and Mosul and Tikrit, these were places where uh, our men and women gave their lives uh, to fight one form uh, of oppression, and now we are in the midst of engaging in those same locations again as it relates to ISIL. So how, how is this different? How is it that you are suggesting that we are not repeating past mistakes in terms of holding territory after we've cleared it and spent an enormous amount of lives and national treasure, we're doing this now for the second time, is in a repeat of past mistakes? 
Thank you, Senator. What I meant by that comment specifically was on the, the model of reconstruction. We spent $60 billion on reconstruction in Iraq, uh, and I don't think that the, uh, the, the record is one that was worth, frankly, that investment on the specific reconstruction case, because we would identify big projects and, uh, without the real buy-in of local people. So what we're doing now, we have this uh, stabilization fund that is requires the local people to identify the immediate specific needs for their communities. So how do you get the water back on, lights back on immediately? Okay. And it's been so successful. I, I, so if I take your answer, your clarification to be that you meant the, the, the funds that we spent for reconstruction, but what are we doing? Do we believe the Iraqi forces, once with our assistance, clearing out Anbar and uh, Mosul and Tikrit, are going to have the ability to sustain and hold uh, the places that we've cleared so that we are not there for a third time? Is, is, is that your view on the administration? Well, to, to date, as I mentioned, all the areas that have been taken back from ISIL, none of them have been retaken by ISIL. So I think that indicates at least that we've hit on something that has been that is successful. And the model is, you know, these aren't American forces in the streets of these cities trying to hold the territory afterwards. We are organizing local police, local people who know the streets, who know the people, to hold the territory afterwards. So your answer is yes. Your answer is yes. We believe that the Iraqis, through all of their combined forces, once cleared, will be able to maintain those territories on their own and be able to make sure that ISIL doesn't recapture uh, any dominance in them. I think the record so far in that regard is encouraging. This does not mean Iraq will not be full of a host of problems for many, many years to come, but an organized international genocidal terrorist organization controlling cities is something that uh, I do not think they'll be able to do. Let me turn to Syria. Uh, I assume that the administration's view is that the peace talks are our best avenue towards uh, a solution. Is that, is that a fair statement? Uh, that has remained a, a consensus, an international consensus, that we need a diplomatic political transition uh, in Damascus to lead to a, a sustainable solution. And, and, that, and that is, in essence, the administration's hope. Yes. That, that's its policy, right? A political transition in, in Damascus, which is now enshrined in a UN Security Council Resolution 2254. So here's my problem. Uh, the United Nations Special Envoy for Syria, Mr. Demistra, said last week that he hoped that the Syrian peace talks would resume in July, but only if the security and humanitarian situation on the ground showed clear improvement. And he said political talks cannot proceed while hostilities are escalating and civilians are starving. So on the one hand, we place our hopes in the United Nations process, encouraging the coalition to do the same. On the other hand, the United Nations doesn't have a way forward because the security and humanitarian situation on the ground isn't improving. So the question remains, especially uh, I don't particularly view that Russia uh, and Iran have the same goals as we do as it relates to Syria and the Syrian people. Uh, don't we need to be engaging in trying to improve the security and humanitarian situation on the ground so that the aspirational political talks can move forward. Uh, shouldn't we be looking at safe zones, no-fly zones, uh, other uh, elements of trying to create the basis for the aspirational peace talks to take place? Uh, there's no question that with the current levels of violence, without a de-escalation of violence, without a cessation of hostilities that can be maintained, 
uh, the conditions for a meaningful political process that leads to transition are uh, extremely difficult. So uh, you're right, Senator. On the humanitarian side, uh, since the cessation of hostilities has been in place, we've managed to reach um, almost 10 times as many people who uh, had been reached an entire year before, um, but it's not nearly enough. And the Assad regime continues to even attack areas after humanitarian aid uh, is delivered. Um, the real flashpoint of this right now is Aleppo, where these multiple offensives are ongoing, as I mentioned, um, and we're working very, uh, you know, very hard to try to, to, try to de-escalate that. But um, without a cessation of hostilities that can be maintained and humanitarian aid getting the people in need, the political process in Geneva uh, really remains as a, as a standstill. Thank you, Mr. If I could, before turning to Senator Perdue, um, there was a group, there were a group of 51 people who dissented uh, on U.S. policy, which, you know, I, I think is a good thing that the State Department allows that type of dissent to take place, and certainly we don't want to do anything to stifle that. I also get the sense that very high leadership within the State Department has urged uh, urged that we put pressure on Assad militarily because of this lack of cessation that's taken place and the fact that when humanitarian aid is delivered, the next day you have a barrel bomb killing the very people that uh, humanitarian aid was given to. Can you give us uh, any sense of whether there is a debate relative to how to handle Assad and the fact that with no cessation occurring that maybe uh, enhanced military military pressure from the U.S. may be a route that's worth, uh, worth taking. Uh, we are, Mr. Chairman, looking very closely at how to uh, have an enforceable cessation of hostilities. And so that's something that is very much um, underway. We've also looked very closely at, you know, the Assad regime, even just the, all the open source statistics, about 100,000 fighters on side of the Assad regime have been killed by the opposition. Uh, GDP has collapsed by 80%. Those are the types of assumptions that four years ago, um, I think many people assume would lead to the, the conditions that would set a political transition, uh, but it hasn't. So what we need is an enforceable cessation of hostilities, and um, we which are looking we, which at- Which we don't have, and without pressure, are not going to get. And I think everyone, including you, understands the circular situation we're in. It, it's not going to happen. I mean, we met with Secretary Kerry in Munich, felt that this, Senator Perdue was there and others, felt that this cessation issue was, uh, was not real. It hasn't been real. And uh, I, I, do, uh, I, I don't see anything at present that's going to, to change that dynamic. I look forward to questioning you further. I'm going to go vote, uh, Senator Perdue, and I'll come back hopefully in time for you and Senator Markey to go vote. Senator Markey is next, and you're now chairman. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, <clears throat> uh, and thank you, uh, Mr. McGurk. You, uh, your testimony is always candid and uh, to the point. I know you're the messenger. Um, I personally am concerned about the 14 months from now, the, the end of the three years, uh, and I'm not putting words in your mouth, but I, I, I want it on the record I'm very concerned about that. I want to talk about Syria just a minute, though. It, it seems to me that we've had witnesses in here that have given us testimony that the, the best option in Syria is a Sunni fighting force on the ground, a coalition Sunni fighting force, not an American force, not an outside force, but a Sunni fighting force. We see in, in, um, in Iraq, we've got issues with Shia militia and security after a, a town is liberated and so forth. 
in private meetings with some of the major players, they've given us information <laughs> that they're ready to stand up, in Saudi Arabia's case, uh, potentially 30,000 fighting troops for uh, a fight in ISIS, or to fight ISIS in Syria. Their concern is a lack of U.S. leadership and resolve, and so they're not doing that. They're, they're waiting on the U.S. And so can you speak to that in, um, in a little more detail? I'm, I'm concerned that we get into Syria, it's a much more uh, confused battle space than what we see in Iraq. <clears throat> Iraq is about territory now, and as we saw in Afghanistan, and we're seeing today in Afghanistan, when the troops liberate a city and they turn it over to the police, that's where the Taliban comes right back. We see it this year as I sit here. So the, the question in Iraq is a different one. I'm trying to get at Syria relative to what kind of fighting force is going to be able to sustain a long-term effort, not only to take the ground, but to hold the ground once it's liberated uh, in Syria. So, Senator, the fundamental premise here of what we need are local people to liberate and hold their own territory. And so in the Sunni Arab areas of Iraq, we need Sunni Arabs from the local areas. So what we've tried to do, I mentioned mobilizing the tribes of Anbar province, training local police. We have a coalition effort led by the Italians training about 900 local police every three months. We're looking now to triple that by the end of the year. These are kind of police leaders who then organize the local people. Uh, that effort has actually been, been successful. But um, we very much agree that we need uh, Sunni Arabs to be the ones to liberate and hold their own territory. But oftentimes, you know, they need help. You need ISIL in many of these cities and towns that they've held for years is an army. I mean, they, they defend it like an army. And so you can't just take out a bunch of Sunni tribesmen and kind of train them for a couple of weeks and put them in the fight to go uh, liberate a city like Fallujah. It just can't work. Uh, I've also met with you know, Sunni tribal leaders who are exiled from Iraq uh, and Syria and claim to have tens of thousands of people ready to fight. And we say, give us the names, we'll get them in the fight. And oftentimes, uh, they don't have that level of influence on the ground. So it's a very complex uh, dynamic. What we found in Anbar, what's really critical is having presence. So we have two sites in Anbar province, one in Al-Assad Air Base and one between Fallujah and Ramadi at Takatam Air Base. That's where our coalition advisors are located. And that has given us the ability to figure out who's who, organize uh, local Sunni fighters and give them the capacity to succeed. And now in Syria, the reason we've gone from 50 special forces advisors up to 300 is for this very reason. And we recognize that the force that will ultimately- I'm, I'm sorry, are those 300 special forces primarily training? Is that what they're doing? Primarily training and some are out advising. Um, but the main mission there uh, again, Monbij will be a difficult fight where that's ongoing now, but after Monbij, it is organizing the force that will push down on Raqqa. Can I ask you a, a follow-up question on that? <clears throat> Last year in 2015, a training program was initiated. Um, at the end of the day, we'd spent about $45 million in 2015 under testimony to armed services, and we had trained about five people. So that was an unmitigated disaster. As we sit here today, the numbers have been reported in the, in the 100 range and we've spent some, somewhere close to, I think we're approaching the 500 million that was authorized, I think. Can you talk about the training program that we've initiated? I know that we've got special forces there doing that, but how many forces are really going back in the fight? And are these really trigger pullers? Are they just enablers or spotters or uh, support people? Yeah, so let me try to explain what we're doing. So the, the effort that was, uh, that was tried to kind of organize and train these, these brigade-like units um, is something that uh, didn't work. What we're doing now is there's a lot of fighters on the ground that are fighting ISIL every single day. 
rather than taking them all out and, and training them in a six-week course, what we're doing now is identifying those groups. They're vetted. They get support from us. They get supplies from us. And then we take out a couple of their uh, leaders or some of the people they identify to learn how to call in airstrikes, uh, to learn how to do more sophisticated type things, which then is a force multiplier for that unit. So uh, we have a system now that is very, very well uh, structured in terms of a force that we work with on the ground being able to call in precision airstrikes, but it takes some training. So rather, again, rather than trying to organize these large units to maneuver around, which isn't, which, which something that uh, was not very successful, we're identifying units that are actually on the ground, they know the local area, they're able to fight, and then giving individual leaders those specialized skills that will enhance their capabilities on the ground. I appreciate that, but we're really not adding additional fighters through that training mechanism at this point in any significant numbers. Is that fair to say? Uh, through, that, through that effort, uh, no. What we are trying to do is organize and grow uh, the force that will move down on, particularly on Raqqa, because that is a prime target of ours. Uh, I noticed the ranking members back. Do you, you have other questions? I think it's you and me right now until the people get back well, to voting. Uh, I, 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 got, I like the numbers here. This, is, this works well. <laughs> I've got another question. I'd like to talk about the second level of the fight. The first fight is kinetic on the ground and in the air. Um, and I see that's a very messy fight in Syria with all the different groups that are fighting each other on different days. I'd like to talk about the hybrid war that's uh, under, underway. You've related to it earlier. In January of 16, the administration announced a major change in our direction there in terms of trying to counter the message of ISIS on uh, social media and other hybrid um, um, platforms. How is that working, and, and ha have we been able to uh, draft outside voices to really try to counter ISIS? And I guess the question overall is, what are we doing today to really try to counter the ISIS message in this hybrid warfare and propaganda and cyber and social media? So, great question. So, we've, of course, established at the State Department the Global Engagement Center, the uh, GEC, which is focused on this 24-7, but this isn't something that can just be done out of Washington. We need a global network uh, to go after their online messaging. And, you know, two years ago when this started, they had kind of free reign on Facebook, on Twitter, on YouTube, um, and their message was one of come join this glorious movement of the caliphate. And we've really reversed that trend. So. I'll just, Twitter is one uh, data point. For, for every single pro-ISIL uh, Twitter handle, there's now six anti-ISIL kind of combating them every 24-7 in cyberspace. Where, where are those six? Are they U.S. handles? Are they? No, they're all over the place. So uh, they're, some of them are just you know, voices from the region, are from they different parts of the world. Some of it's coordinated, but what really works most effectively is kind of the non-coordinated organic uh, counter-messaging. And... Um, Twitter's, we're also working with those companies. Twitter's taken off about 125,000 uh, pro-ISIL sites. That's continuing working with Facebook and YouTube on that. So, but you ask a good question, how is this organized? And, you know, the internet is kind of an organic, uh, obviously, enterprise. You can't really uh, just have centers to do this. But we do have coordinating centers. We have one Well, we have, we've just stood up two two brigade, army brigades of, of cyber warfare warriors. So, yes. I mean. so we, we do. This is, we, have, we have centers to kind of lead this effort. We do some here. Uh, we have an organization in UAE called the Sawab Center. I went there to visit them. They're, they're young, smart, engaged, dynamic, incredible young people, uh, Muslims from the UAE and from the area that want to fight ISIL online. They're doing a great job. Uh, Malaysia's also been leading this, the UK. And that's important because in different parts of the world, the message is very different. So. 
In the Gulf, you kind of have a, a more religiously inspired uh, messaging uh, focus from ISIL. In Europe, also, often it is the sun-drenched scenes of the caliphate. Come, come bring your family, you know, literally kids eating ice cream cones. It's a total lie. Um, and so uh, in Europe, they're working to counter that. But I think this network of voices on the internet now is, uh, is starting to turn the tide against their message. Let me rescue my colleague. There's, there's no time left on the vote on the floor, so I want to make sure he gets over. Even though I'm not sure we're voting the same way, I want to make sure he can get over and cast his vote. Uh, since I have the committee right now, no, Mr. McGurk, let me, um, and the members are coming back. They, they just went to vote. I started over on the floor so we could continue the hearing. Let me ask you, um, We've talked about territorial gain and what happens afterwards. In Syria, you've put a lot of confidence in Manbij in, in that area of being able to block the, the routes to Turkey. Uh, what does Assad do, what does Russia do in regards to the territorial gains in Syria? What will be their strategy? So as you know, our, we don't coordinate at all with the Russians. Um, we talk to them to deconflict airspace. Uh, and we also, when we're running an operation, we kind of make sure that uh, there's no interference. And so far, in most cases, uh, that's, been the, that's been the case. Um, the forces we've worked with that have retaken territory, we have found, uh, have been able to govern that territory fairly effectively. One problem we have in Syria that uh, we have not had in Iraq is that the ability to get humanitarian assistance, humanitarian supplies into some of these areas is extremely limited. And uh, this gets to the issue, of course, with Turkey and with the Syrian Kurds and kind of that uh, conflict and the border being closed. Um, in Monbij, for example, once Monbij is liberated, we have identified the NGOs, the, um, the resources to get humanitarian aid flowing into Monbij, but we have to find the, the border posts and to work with Turkey to make sure that it can get in. Um, so I would just say, so far, we've not had any interference from the regime or uh, the Russians in terms of particularly in the north uh, where we've taken territory away from ISIL. But it is much harder. But as far as the um, Assad-loyal forces conflicting with the Syrian democratic forces, is that likely to occur in these areas? This gets really complicated in northwest Syria, where you have uh, Syrian regime forces, you have the Syrian Democratic Forces and the Kurds and the YPG. You have Syrian opposition forces, none of whom really coordinate, and many of whom uh, disagree with each other at a local level. And so, uh, we actually, this morning, I was just working on this with some colleagues. We're working to get the leaders of all of those groups together, uh, not including, of course, the Syrian forces, uh, to talk about, this is literally locally based, what's happening in this town, what's happening in that town, uh, to try to you know, quiet things down between groups, all of whom share uh, the threat the threat of ISIL. It's, this is where, this is the most complicated thing from the strategic level within the region and different countries and different capitals not always agreeing with one another to say the least, and then at the local tactical level. So we have to work it really in all dimensions. So what we're working to do in this northwest Syria area, kind of called the Azaz Corridor, uh, is to get the leaders of different groups together uh, with us to talk about uh, how we can better work together here to get humanitarian aid flowing, and to better organize forces against, against ISIL. Thank you. Senator Rubio. Thank you. I, I want to begin. Uh, you talked earlier about now as ISIS begins to lose control over territory, you're going to see increasingly relying on the ability to inspire attacks. 
abroad by individuals who perhaps aren't being directed by them but are being inspired by them. And you, in fact, said deranged individuals who can commit mass atrocities or whatever and flying, doing it under the banner of ISIS. That seems to describe what we saw just two weeks ago, tragically, in my home state of Florida and Orlando. And so what you are saying is that as ISIS continues to lose territory and the ability to argue that they've created this caliphate, attacks like the one we saw in Orlando with individuals that fit that sort of profile would become more <laughs> commonplace potentially, and not just in the U.S., but, but in other parts of the world as well. Senator, I'm not sure I would say it more commonplace. I, I, ISIL's propaganda has always called for attacks in our homeland. Um, but as they lose territory, they are, you know, they've stopped kind of calling in Dabig Magazine, for example, I mentioned, they've stopped calling for people to come to Syria. They're now saying, hey, stay at home, and, and uh, but they've been saying this for a couple years. Um, so this is where it is, this is a problem, that's why I just have to be very candid in my assessment. It's the assessment, of course, of the administration and Director Brendan. This is a threat that'll be with us uh, for years. We've had 40,000 of these foreign fighters come into Syria. Fortunately, we are killing them by the thousands inside Syria, so they can't get out. Um, and we do believe that taking away their territory, taking away this notion of a caliphate, which has been a fundamental driver of their recruitment, uh, will diminish the appeal of ISIL. But that doesn't mean they can then fly another banner, whether it's Nusra or something else. The, the thing I'm trying to break through is this distinction that exists out there between directed by ISIS and inspired by ISIS. In my mind, there is no distinction. They are two parts of the same strategy, which is to get people to commit terrorist acts in the name of ISIS in an effort to terrorize who they view as their opponents and call attention to their organization. There is no distinction. Inspir inspiration is a way of directing these attacks as we saw here just a few weeks ago, tragically. And then you talk also, because this is another point that I've made, even if you were to wipe them out on the battlefield, the ideology that underpins ISIS, this radical jihadist ideology will remain in place. I think that when it comes to the issue of Syria, and this has already been touched upon in some of the other questions that we've heard here, Syria will remain a fertile ground for an ISIS-like group. It will be Jabhat al-Nusra next or somebody else to step up and fill that vacuum as long as Assad is in power. He is the irritant that creates the conditions by which these sorts of things exist on the ground. That doesn't mean that everyone that's against Assad is a radical jihadist, but the, his presence there creates enough of an irritant, especially among Sunni populations, where groups like ISIS or some successor group could take advantage of that to further their ideology uh, and, and, in essence, take up arms the way ISIS has done. Isn't that correct? Uh, the Assad regime remains an incubator for, this, the, the conflict inside Syria remains an incubator for extremist groups on both sides of the sectarian divide. And it is the sectarian divide in the region that supercharges these extremists from both sides. We see young Shia from Afghanistan coming into fight in Syria and young Sunnis from all over the world coming into fight in Syria. Uh, it is something that uh, is t destabilizing most importantly to Syria but can also spawn attacks outside of Syria. So uh, getting a handle on the Syrian civil war, I very much agree with you, Senator, is a fundamental precondition to mitigating the risks of ISIL and uh, Jabhat al-Nusra, which is an increasing concern. But, but not just getting a hold of the, so, I mean, the removal of Assad is critical. It's a critical component. Well, the war won't end so long as Assad is there. Right. Yeah. And so to that point, the process we have in place now to achieve it through Geneva has been described to me now by people, including those involved in the process, as something that's circling the drain, in essence. It is not going well. The process, in many ways, have given Russia cover to do some of the things they've now done, like, for example, much of the Russian military engagement in Syria has not been targeted at ISIS. It has been targeted at non-ISIS groups, and in particular, we saw an open source report last week 
that they specifically targeted U.S.-backed rebels on the, near the Jordanian border? Is it not true that much of Russia's military action in the region has been geared towards non-ISIS rebels in an effort to basically wipe them out and then turn to the world and say, you have two choices in Syria, ISIS or Assad? So when Russia first came in, about 70, 80 percent of their attacks were against opposition groups, moderate opposition groups. And after the cessation of hostilities, we did see that flip so that they were focused on Palmyra and other areas. Um, but in the last few weeks, we've seen as this situation, particularly in Aleppo, has escalated, uh, they are conducting a significant amount of the airstrikes in that northern Aleppo corridor, which is where we believe the moderate opposition is based. And so that's a total violation of the cessation of hostilities. We have two problems with the cessation of hostilities. One is Shabbat al-Nusra, which is launching these massive offensives. Um, and then second is primarily the regime air force. So the regime air force, as far as uh, we can tell, is basically a criminal enterprise dropping barrel bombs and, and attacking uh, uh, civilians on, under the pretext of attacking Nusra. Um, and this, you know, so long as this is going on, um, it gives, it's a petri dish for extremist organizations. Well, my time is up, but I just want to leave something on the record. I remain, while I, I share the objective of retaking Manbij, I, I am concerned about the reliance that we've placed in our alliance with the YPG and in their activities there and what that means both to our relationship with the Turks and ultimately to their stated goal of uniting the cantons across northern Syria. I think it has, it's a, it is a strategy that perhaps is was viewed as necessary given the realities on the battlefield, but I think in the long term creates some significant complications in the region with a number of different groups, including the Kurds in Iraq. Senator Murphy? Sorry, Senator Markey. Yeah. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, very much. Mr. McGurk, during the past two weeks, both Ambassador Silliman, the nominee to be ambassador to Iraq, and Jonathan Weiner, the special envoy for Libya, testified before the committee. Uh, it's obvious that tactical successes against ISIS, whether in Iraq or Libya, will not bring about the strategic defeat of ISIS unless tactical operations are done in ways that not only avoid harming civilian populations but proactively protect them from harm. And two, we and international partners undertake aggressive political interventions to negotiate agreements to bring together divergent armed groups under unified governments that represent and protect all of the people. In your testimony, you acknowledge that the Fallujah Shia militias committed abuses against Sunni civilians who were fleeing for their lives. It is also apparent that adequate advanced preparations were not made to receive, transport, and provide relief to tens of thousands of people who fled the fighting in Fallujah. And I understand that after the fact, the Iraqi government says it will hold offenders accountable for abuses, and also that the international community is stepping up humanitarian relief efforts. But I'm very concerned that after the fact fixes may not be enough to convince Sunni people that the Iraqi government is on their side. So my question is, what are the Iraqi government actions? What are the armed forces doing before and during military operations to identify and mitigate foreseeable risks that Shia militia will engage in sectarian attacks on Sunni civilians? Are there specific things that our people who work with the Iraqis are doing or should be doing to ensure that battle plans include proactive measures 
to prevent such attacks from happening. We are politicians on this panel. That's the one thing that we are experts on. Uh, people will not forget if they were not protected, even if the, there is a tactical victory in any individual city. Yeah, thank you, Senator. This is critically important. It's something, when I was in Iraq last week, took up a lot, many of my discussions, particularly with Prime Minister Mahdi and with uh, the Iraqi security leader, leaders. Um, it's important to recognize that most of the atrocities committed against Sunnis in places like Fallujah and Anbar province are committed by ISIL. I mean, ISIL kind of held that population hostage. We're finding prisoners <laughs> and dungeons and cellars in which they were committing incredible atrocities against Sunnis. When they retook Anbar province, uh, ISIL massacred hundreds of people from the Abu Nimr tribe, a very proud tribe in the central Euphrates Valley. So, um, however, we have to make sure that when security operations come in to liberate these areas from ISIL, that uh, these lawless groups are uh, not part of the operation. And as I mentioned, the early days of Fallujah, uh, we had a serious problem. About 24 hours, there were uh, serious reports, many of which have turned out not to be credible, but some of which appear to be credible. And the special representative to the UN testified before the UN Security Council about this last week, particularly about the measures that are now in place to mitigate the risk of this. So one thing that happens when you liberate a territory and the civilians come out, you do have to screen the population to make sure that ISIL terrorists have not infiltrated that population. So in Anbar now, there is a local um, um, official from Anbar from the local area that is a part of that process every step of the way. Uh, that's something that uh, the local leaders of Anbar insisted on and that's now in place. And in our discussions in Erbil on how to do the Mosul campaign, this is a front and center issue. We have to make sure uh, that these types of events uh, do not occur in Mosul and that all the forces that take part in the Mosul campaign are operating strictly under the control of the Iraqi security and What does forces. the government say to you? Uh, the government, and this is why the government of Iraq is a real partner in this regard, uh, the government is supportive. I mean, the, those atrocities were a tarnish on the government on the Iraqi army, the Iraqi security forces, and that's something that Prime Minister Abadi very much recognizes. And did they agree that Fallujah was a mistake the way it was conducted? Certainly, those early, it was really in the first 24 hours of the uh, offensive movement to the city in which we had these reports. And it was uh, you know, top to bottom voices inside Iraq, from the Shia religious community, from Grand Ayatollah Sistani, all the way to Muqtad al-Sadr, immediately condemned uh, those uh, reports of abuse. Of course, the government did. Um, the Minister of Defense announced the arrest of some members of the Iraqi army even who were, uh, who were involved in, in that abuse. And they have to remain vigilant against this. Uh, when you get a lot of young people out on the streets with guns in a type of situation like this, uh, it's almost impossible to uh, <coughs> mitigate the risk of anything happening. However, when you see something like we saw in the early days of Fallujah, they have how to many act, people, they have how to many, act fast. How, how many people have been punished so far for what happened in Fallujah? Um, I think t about four or five members of the Iraqi army have been, have been detained and some members of the what is particular Shia. What is their punishment so far? I don't have, I don't think there's, the investigation's been concluded, but our, our principle is, and we're, we're saying repeatedly, is that people have to be held accountable when reports are found to be credible. So um, why were, what, what's the answer to why were the Shia militia allowed to be put in those positions where they can commit those kinds of atrocities? What's the answer that you get from the government? I think there was, you know, there's, there's one particular unit of the popular mobilization forces uh, on the Shia side that was operating totally outside uh, the law um, in some of the suburbs of Fallujah, such as Sakluia. So 
Um, I can't say specifically uh, why that unit was there in Sakhalouia, but I, what I can say uh, is that the government has taken measures to make sure that it is addressed. Uh, but I no, I, yeah. And I know my time is going to run out, but I, I guess what I would say is if those five individuals and more aren't severely punished and punished in a way that, the, that is public and clear, uh, then there will be no discouragement in the other cities that we're trying to take. So I think that's your key political job, is just to make sure that there is a punishment for those people, uh, because otherwise other militia will think that they can do it, get a slap on the wrist, they accomplish their vengeful purpose, um, but in the end of the day, they create a political conundrum that's very difficult to solve uh, some, uh, 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 in the years ahead uh, that we know that we not have to revisit this thing politically. So is that a goal that you have, that these people be punished? Um, accountability is fundamental. But, you're Absolutely. saying punishment for those five. Accountability, that means that, yeah, the punishment- Accountability can just be calling them out and saying, don't do it yeah. again. If that's punishment- punishment under, the, yeah, punishment under the law, yeah. So they have to have a process and people have to be held accountable and that means they have to be punished when, uh, okay. when violations occur. Very I agree. Important. Okay, thank you. Thank, thank you. you, sir, yes. Senator Murphy. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Chairman. I know we consider Mr. McGurk to be a global citizen, but he is indeed a graduate of Hall High School in West Hartford, Connecticut, and so we are- Connored High School, actually. Honored, I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, man. And the he rival. has over overcome that- The, rive the rival- Long-term rivalry. <laughs> All right, let me try to recover from that. Um, so thank you for being here, um, uh, Mr. McGurk, and thank you for taking on what is, you know, frankly, a um, nightmare of a job trying to manage this crisis and manage this coalition, and we're lucky to have you um, at the helm. Um, in response, I think, to a question from uh, Senator Corker earlier, you were talking about our concerns about some of our coalition partners not being as involved as we would like, especially with the air campaign. And so I, I wanted to ask you a, a question relative to the reasons why some members of the coalition are not participating at the level that we would expect. When, um, when I was in Abu Dhabi at the end of last year, I went to get a brief from the Ministry of Defense. I was there with another member to oversee our counter-ISIS uh, campaign. And the title of the brief, knowing that I was there to talk about the coalition fight against ISIL, was the threat from Iran. And the entire brief was about the work that the UAE and other coalition members are doing to counter the expansion of Iranian influence. And from what I understand, their focus, the Saudis' focus and UAE's focus on Yemen, has been one of the primary reasons why they have been less participatory in the air campaign against, uh, against ISIL. Um, and so speak to the worry that some of us have that this concentration of focus on Yemen, which is facilitated by U.S. support, uh, has quite frankly distracted resources from members of the coalition um, that we would like to be primarily used in the fight against ISIL. So uh, we complain about the Saudis and the UAE sort of withdrawing support from the air campaign against ISIL, but to many of us, it appears that we've facilitated that withdrawal by assisting their air campaign in Yemen against uh, the Houthis. So uh, talk about the intersection of those two conflicts and, and how we get some of our partners to focus first on ISIL rather than first on the Houthis. 
there's no question that the conflict in Yemen has been, uh, has pulled resources away from what was uh, a real focus on the counter-ISIL campaign. Uh, that's one reason uh, we have focused quite a bit in the recent months on trying to uh, establish a political process to uh, end the, the conflict in Yemen. Um, our close partners, the Saudis, when they see a threat on the border, they have to act, and so we recognize <laughs> their need to act. Um, the Emiratis have been a, one of our closest partners uh, militarily, particularly, and they have maintained a, a strong participation in the, in the counter-ISIL campaign. Uh, but we do very much believe the primary focus here is on ISIL, that ISIL is a threat not only to us, but it's also a threat to the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. I think that's something the Saudis will tell you. Um, but all I can say, Senator, is where we are right now, we want to end the war in Yemen um, in order to really focus efforts on the counter-ISIL campaign. So as these multiple conflicts have been going on, um, it has, you know, reduce the resources that we've been able to focus on, on ISIL over the skies of Syria. That said, over the past recent months, we've had four additional coalition partners extend their strikes into Syria. Uh, this is the most, I was just in Iraq talking to General McFarlane, our, our overall commander. This is the most kinetic phase of the campaign to date. 70% uh, of the planes now taking off are actually dropping their, their munitions. That's because we have better intelligence. We have uh, more partners on the ground fighting. And that is, but that also, brings to the key point which you're raising is that we need more resources in the skies um, as we continue to accelerate. So um, I'm hopeful that as the Yemen political process moves forward, and we all hope that it does, that we'll have uh, more capacity brought to bear against ISIL. Second question, there's been a number of reports uh, in the press over the last month or so about groups within the rebel coalition fighting each other, and, and some of this is relative to uh, to groups that are backed covertly by the United States, and I understand the limitations on how much you can talk about that. Recent reports about the conflicts between the FSA and the YPG. Um, for, for many of us, our reluctance to, to arm and train groups inside the fight is because we have a belief that we are in the second order of fighting today, that the, the first order was a fight between the rebels and Assad, the second order is the part of the war in which ISIS has joined, but there are then third and fourth and fifth orders that may involve groups that have been funded by the United States fighting each other as the battlefield shrinks and perhaps we actually make progress against some of the groups that right now provide a buffer between organizations that are funded by the United States. Um, just speak to the, to the fear that ultimately groups that are armed today by the United States who may be fighting the same enemy may ultimately be fighting each other if we are successful in our effort to try to downgrade the, 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 the power and lethality of some of these existing groups. Uh, so, Senator, where we're successful at kind of tamping down these locally-based conflicts is where we have relationships and a presence on the ground. So, in Iraq, I mean, we We've had problems between Kurds and Arabs. We've had problems between different groups in Anbar province, Sunni on Sunni things. Where we're present, we have relationships, we can tamp it down. What, just to be very candid, what is frustrating on the Syria side, we don't have anybody inside Syria on the ground. Sometimes it's very difficult to tell what's happening. Uh, we rely on people, particularly in the Northwest, telling us what they think is happening. And our ability to then tamp down localized escalations is not what I wish it was. In Eastern Syria, where we do have platforms now, uh, we're developing a, a relationship base that has been 
very effective and that we hope we can build upon in this northwest part of the country where you're talking about we have these localized competitions between different groups that we support uh, that we can work locally to, to de-escalate that. But I just have to be honest, without people on the ground working these problems, it's very hard. It's very hard to do it by remote control. And uh, in Iraq, we have people on the ground, we have relationships, when things flare up, we can really work to flare them down. In eastern Syria, kind of east of the Euphrates, we have platforms, we're developing close relationships. To Senator Rubio's question, we recognize we need an Arab force to move down on Raqqa, not just the Kurds. That's why we have these platforms. We're recruiting the Arabs by the thousands now. Um, but in northwest Syria, it's just, it's incredibly difficult, and it's one of, uh, it's one of my frustrations working on this day-to-day, -day, frankly. And I think you've identified the Gordian knot that we all have to deal with, which is that uh, you're saying without uh, more American presence on the ground, we risk uh, these local conflicts um, becoming more heated and more problematic. But of course, many of us know the risks associated with putting more U.S. forces on the ground. This is a tough one to figure our way out of. And again, part of the reason why I'm glad that you've taken up this assignment. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. I know we're a few minutes past your hard stop, and I'll be very brief. Um, you had earlier talked about Mamage being the laying the foundation for what we would do in Raqqa. And I know you've talked a little bit with Senator Rubio about the makeup of what needs to happen. Do we, do we feel at present uh, the forces can be assimil assimilated to, to, to deal with Raqqa in the near term? So to Senator Rubio's question, which is an important one, it's about we recognize we have to have a, an Arab force that moves into these Arab areas to push on Raqqa. And when I was in Kobani in February, this was kind of just getting off the ground. One of the reasons I was in there was to talk about this operation, which at the time was the biggest operation we were going to do in Syria, on a town called Shadadi, which is an Arab town. We organized a force then of about uh, 6,000 or so. 2,500 of them were Arab. The first time we had a real inclusive mix, it turned out to be successful. That's one of the things that uh, gave President Obama the confidence to increase our special forces capability inside Syria to organize these forces. Now, the, what's so important about Monbij is that the ratio is even reversed, so it's a mostly Arab force moving now on Monbij, uh, much more limited role for the, for the Syrian Kurds. So it's kind of a model of what we would use ultimately to push down on Raqqa. Um, the Americans who are working this on the ground every day in northern Syria, the reports I'm getting, they're encouraged that as we're having success, more and more of these Arab leaders, the Arab tribal leaders are coming to join this force. They want to be part of this push on Raqqa. And so right now, I think the trend line is good, but I would not underestimate how hard this is uh, uh, to pull these forces together, uh, to organize them, to make them a cohesive unit to be able to push together with our air support. However, from Shadadi, which was a proof of concept, and now Monbij, I think we've hit on something that can work. I'll ask you in private, uh, you know, you don't want to lay out a time frame for either Mosul or Raqqa. Uh, uh, you know, being in Raqqa, I guess I was in uh, Iraq just a few months before last June when we thought last June was going to be the time that we went into Mosul. And obviously it's this June and we're still not ready. But I look forward to having that offline conversation. I know you're on your way to the White House. I don't know who the audience is there, but I, I would say again, uh, the fact that uh, Assad is still killing people uh, the day after humanitarian aid is being delivered <laughs> does beg the question of what kind of force 
needs to be pressed against him to, to, to stifle the Civil War. I mean, this is never going to be dealt with appropriately until that ends. Uh, it's evident that uh, Russia and Iran have not had the effect on Assad that, that was contemplated when the cessation began. And I, I do hope you're able to talk to me after today a little bit more about what the thinking is in that regard. We thank you for your service to our country. Um, the record will be open until the close of business on Thursday. If you could answer fairly promptly written questions, and I'm sure we'll follow. Uh, again, uh, we thank you for your service. We appreciate you being here. And uh, with that, the meeting's adjourned. Thank you, Mr. Chairman.